Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Becker as always. And today we're diving into music television. That's right, MTV. Because MTV just turned 40? Is that, is that right, Sam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it tur- with remarkably little um, pomp and circumstance of, of any kind, of any notice of this. Fanfare. <laughs> this this really important cultural force yeah yeah i i didn't i mean i didn't see much uh i don't know maybe because it's like 40 isn't like a big deal like 50 will be more or maybe it's just that like as we'll explain mtv is just sort of as as mtv as it is itself is just maybe not as relevant anymore although its influence still obviously is uh resonating through culture and maybe you know the other thing I would say almost to that to that like why was there so little fanfare? To a certain extent, it's I would say it's almost a victim of its own success that we very much all live in the world that if MTV didn't make MTV was the the point on the edge of the spear of making this media world that we live in, and almost yeah. its influence is so broad that it's hard to really uh its influence is so broad that sometimes it's easy to almost forget it in a weird way yeah yeah definitely definitely and i think that like you know and we'll get into this but i think that it kind of went through different iterations of influence and so maybe some of those iterations are like no longer kind of by younger generations people like remembered or known like that it's really was such a big deal and i guess that's what we'll go ahead and kind of dive into today a little bit as well so okay so i'm gonna do something a little bit different here where i'm gonna start this off our us diving into all things mtv by offering up a little antidote about that comes from the book i want my mtv and i think that it also, you know, the rise of MTV is a major cultural moment in modern music that completely changed the game, as we were saying. You know, industry, culture, on like so many levels, still resonating on both the business side and the cultural side, too. But before we dive into that, I would just want to illustrate where this game changer came from and what it came out of by starting off with this little story that I read in that book that I feel will kind of set the stage for like what we're about to discuss. And in my opinion, like really encapsulates MTV and how it came to exist and what it also became. So the heady days of the early 80s and MTV is a backed venture by American Express and Warner. And we'll get into more on that later. And uh, in an attempt to make it viable, a 24 hour cable music video channel, this small crack team of uh, vice presidents and execs that were running the thing were uh, struggling to get picked up by regional cable companies and as a result, get ad sales and any kind of backing, right? So uh, during some, you know, Madison Avenue discussion with some real madmen types, uh, they realized they need some celebrity backing to really push MTV onto the consumer and, you know, force the hand of the cable companies. They need, like, they need a killer ad campaign, in other words, with a big time star. We know about this. We know all this. You know, we've seen this before. So in one of these meetings, Mick Jagger gets mentioned, and as it turns out, the program director at the time, a guy named Les Garland, who went on to be the executive producer of six VMAs, uh, had a link with Mick Jagger through his secretary. So he puts in a phone call, she puts in a phone call, the Rolling Stones are in Paris, they fly out there, 
Garland's secretary, a woman named Joan Myers, sits in the hotel room waiting for the Stones to call while Garland essentially goes on like a day and a half bender. Uh, and quotes in the book, he says, I got lost for a day and a half. I met some women. I had a pretty good time. Joan was freaked out. She had the police looking for me. And th- you know, just classic exec. Cool. Classic. Cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Real cool, cool. yeah. Awesome behavior. Yay, yeah. awesome. Yeah, classic, we, like, we 80s, it. like, white dude exec shit, right? Okay. So, uh, eventually they get their meeting with Jagger, and Garland, supposedly, has a back and forth with Jagger because Mick wants to get paid for a sponsorship. So Garland throws a single shocking, shocking no. Yeah, shocking no. Oh, he wants to get paid for like giving a sponsorship. Mick, Mick Jagger doing things for the money. No. So supposedly this Garland guy throws a dollar on the coffee table, uh, assuming between you know bottles of Perrier and uh, lines of cocaine, and says, "Here's a dollar." And Mick Jagger laughs, says he likes Garland, and does the ad. And then from there, you get David Bowie, Pat Benatar, the police. And the famous uh, I want my MTV slogan is born, causing a stir and sparking off, you know, basically the beginning of what would become like MTV's success. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. MTV music, television, video music, 24 hours a day, and it's stereo. Right, right. Okay, so. So we could dive into some more detail and maybe zoom out here, but I just wanted to start with that story because I feel like it illustrates just how much MTV came out of a corporate culture during a heavily corporatized moment in rock music and where big stones like the Stones are friends with like record execs and madmen types. And it just all reveals to me that the guys who started MTV, and it's all mostly guys, never really give a fuck about the music. They give a fuck about a success and making money. And they had the connections and some nice financial backing to start, at least, to push it, to 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 start, or to at least push it where predecessors may have struggled to do so, right? And we'll go into this a lot more, but I just wanted to lead with that, uh, so that we and our listeners keep in mind what the root of this incredibly influential cable channel that transformed music and culture in ways that we're still seeing today, what that root was, is that it was just coming out of corporate dudes trying to make some money <laughs> yeah and, and it's a really good point it's, it's like a remarkably internalist revolution right totally. like a lot of times there's this idea that these scrappy outsiders and they're gonna have a big idea but this is like everyone in who starts mtv is a total insider yeah and and in some ways i mean and we can talk about this more later like a lot of the the, the, the kinds of um the the really revolutionary or opening aspects of mtv that get remembered a lot uh kind of uh retro retrospectively a lot of those are either accidental or about like a very specific moment when things weren't fully locked down yet right and that pretty much the rest of the story is it's the industry baby yeah it's the fucking industry and i think you know also like telling that story and kind of starting this all off by telling that story i just feel like it it plays well into a reoccurring theme which we mention almost every episode now there was no good time (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so sam maybe we can zoom out a bit now and discuss what exactly the fuck mtv was during this super earlier period when it was really uh you know not so much a scrappy 
startup, but a decently funded, no one is going to lose their life savings venture into cable by a massive corporate conglomeration because uh, it because it's very it was very different back then than from what it is now. Yay, <laughs> yay. So, okay, so this is um, a story that I think has a lot to do with like a very very complicated industry that. Unlike the music industry, I don't care about, which is cable TV. <laughs> so we're gonna skirt Facts. over the, the 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 surface of the endless black pit that is the complexities of broadcast and cable. Lucky um, you, listener. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna skirt right over that surface because uh, that's a whole other it's a whole other ball game. But yeah, it's important to remember, right, that MTV emerges just at the beginning of really widespread cable TV, right? Which begins to offer, really transform America's most popular medium by offering viewers choices. And I think they, they people tended to have like, what, like 10 channels at this point? And cable, as it was being wired out, really expands the options. It expands what you could show. It expands the diversity. And, and it allows... Yeah. Um what had already been happening in a lot of ways throughout American culture, right? Like narrow casting instead of NBC or CBS, which needs to put on shows that appeal to like everyone at six, you could have a station like ESPN. You could have a station like MTV that can start to do what folks in the music industry had already been doing in radio, which is try to pick off a very specific segment of the population, appeal to them and then sell their eyeballs to advertisers basically right so everyone freedom of choice baby <laughs> wasn't that an early mtv hit actually uh by, by devo, devo by, you your ass. by the quintessential new wave band devo <laughs> um <laughs> cables coming and there's a sense in the air in the late 70s or early 80s that cable's coming and this is gonna clearly be the newest growth technology this is also one of those places where it's like important to remember that there was tech before tech right that there was a point of time when cable tv was the killer app and the same kind of hype and the same kind of like wall street valuations um and wall street money are circling around cable tv and so basically American Express and Warner Communications, fresh off of being renamed Warner Communications because they had been previously the Kinney Corporation, which also owned a series of parking lots in New York, in and around the tri-state <laughs> area that were allegedly mob-connected. Apparently, the... <laughs> apparently some serious moneymakers. Hey, you want to park a car in Manhattan? Apparently, apparently the parking lot industry <laughs> money. was notoriously mobbed up. And apparently the Kinney Corporation, look, this is all allegations. They, they've been defending themselves from these allegations for many years. It's not an area I'm poking my he head into, but they renamed themselves <laughs> and spun well, off the parking lot. This is lots. a good time that we should... Yeah, this is a good time that we should tell uh, our audience that uh, we are actually going to be doing a 10-part series on the history of parking lots in Manhattan. But, uh, oh, I thought that, we were going to tell them it. that, uh, disclose that we're actually funded by American Express. American Express, be where you want to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> no, no. So, <laughs> so anyway, right, there's this, uh, the connection between these two companies. Yeah. Um, as with many of these kinds of Warner and Amex, 
and they Warner spin Communications, off... not Warner Brothers. Yes, the same Warner Brothers. It's all the same Warner Brothers. It's okay. So 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 MX and Warner Communications, which owns Warner Bros. The Film Studio, the Warner Music Group, one of the major labels in America, and uh, Warner Cable, which is a, a different Those thing. Warner's owning everything. So, but at this point, they spin off a new company that is like a new baby company that's owned by these two corporate parents. And the idea is to take some of the interactive technology of one side, some of the, the media smarts of the other side, and basically create a new kind of like marketing, I mean, marketing company, basically, right? Like, like that you could bring in audiences and then sell, use that data with American Express. That was the plan. And it had like the worst, most uncatchy name. It was like Warner Amex Communications, something like WASAC or something like that. Anyways, it was not good. And out of this, yeah, so they, though, they, they, they were like, we want to... Sp- some 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 cable channels some cable, like cable pop channels up. pop up right um i think there's a sports one there's a news one and there's a music one and well and probably most relevant for us there actually was the movie channel which is a 24-hour channel that displayed movies that yeah and that's and that's relevant because that was part of the argument for like why some of the like these execs were like pushing the idea of a music video, 24-hour music video channel. Because they're like, hey, we got a music channel, why oh. don't we do it with music? Well, sorry, we, ha- we have a movie channel, why don't we do it with music? So, so basically, there's there's this idea that, oh, maybe we should have a, a, a music channel, right? That it could kind of be yeah. like a visual radio station, which is actually kind of a cool idea if you think about it, right? Like It's like a radio station, but there's visuals. You could walk in and out of the room. You're listening to new music. Um, and this is actually- But not original either. Yeah, but it, but exactly, but not original. This is actually an idea that had been kicking around from a couple point from a couple different players, um, and it's an idea that had kind of been circulating. And there's a lot of finger pointing about like who invented the idea of MTV. As far as I can tell, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fact. because like it doesn't matter. This is just like a great Lester Bangs line about like who invented punk rock and it's like actually it was like your aunt in 1952 but no one ever heard her, so does it matter? Um it's like the music critic version of if a tree falls in the forest, right? Like yeah. It ultimately doesn't matter. Now, it's funny that a couple of these actually almost did quite literally get off the ground. Um, Todd Rudgren, of all people, <laughs> had a yeah. like was trying to produce a video channel out of his Bearsville studio in New York. And in fact, literally bought, this is a period of time when the number of satellites that you could link into cable, you know, that, 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 that were used as the basic transmitter for cable, um, were very limited and so literally he bought <laughs> yeah like, a transponder yeah. on a satellite that fe- failed to adequately accurately launch f- dropped out of orbit he got pushed back down the ranking by a year and like in that year mtv launched <laughs> so he literally yeah. it literally supposedly did, it, i don't know i don't know whether to believe this or not but supposedly that's what todd says i mean yeah yeah, yeah. that's what todd <laughs> says um <laughs> There's also I'm on a first name basis with him. Mike Mike Nesmith <laughs> of the um, of the Monkees and later the First National Band also had like uh, put together a number of video clips. I mean, it makes sense. The Monkees came out of 
basically a music video television show. And so he was very aware and alive to the possibility of putting visuals with music. Um, and so again, there are these industry players that are coming up with this idea, but MTV, and even before that, there were examples of the bridging of like music and video or like live music on television, like and shows revolving around that even before MTV. Yeah, I mean, there, there's also like like well. there's like Gur, a music war, I think, which is like uh, a, a semi live compilation of like punk performers that was like played on TV and stuff. And I know a lot of bands like got seen through that. You could think about documentaries like The Decline of Western Civilization, right? that is happening just around this time and it's basically a series of musical performances. Right, or there's like Top of the Pops and there's like shows like Midnight Special, which is like sort of a bandstand style, uh, you know, band comes on, performs, they're probably just lip singing, you know, but like, you know, looking like they're rocking out or whatever. There's like, you know, there's a bunch of different shows going on. I mean, like the idea of like bridging music and video was like already sort of like in the collective uh, consciousness of uh, corporate types and, mu- and music and the music industry. Yeah, so basically they, they, they kind of make this pitch and, and very specifically they make this pitch that A, there's a big untapped market, B, that it's possible to reach like teenage consumers in a way that radio increasingly, teenage rock consumers in a way that radio increasingly wasn't. And then also that there was this set of promotional videos already out there that labels had sort of been making. And I think that that was really important, right? That the, and the labels made them for a couple different reasons. You know, there was, um, there's the, you don't want to tour in a place, but you have a big record there. So you release it for TV, right? Like if you're a big, if you're an American band and all of a sudden your single goes to number one in Belgium and they want to put you on TV in Belgium, but you don't want to fly to Belgium to play for this market, you would just film a promotional video and they would put it on top of like, put it on their version of Top of the Pops. And really Top of the Pops generated, I think a lot of these because you sort of had to appear every time your song was number one and some bands just didn't want to. And so they would film themselves and then Jay just air that clip. I think repeatedly, actually. I I am not a Top of the, top of the Pops aficionado, like Top of the Pops fan. Yet. <laughs> yeah, yet. Top of the Pops fans uh, reach out if that's incorrect. And in fact, they had to film a different one. But so anyway, because in many ways of the challenges of, of playing a European market or kind of breaking into various national markets in Europe, there was this reservoir of European video content, both most of it by European bands, but not exclusively by European bands. And also just artists who are well-to-do like Bowie or like Rod Stewart who like have these videos either promotionally or also just sort of like artistic accompaniments I guess you would say to like their work yeah so so you have this body or concert footage or concert footage um and so basically they kind of said there's enough of this and it's already out there and we don't have to make it and that's really I think the key and and Again, in reading a couple different books, but especially the the I Want My MTV, which is like a, an oral history, that was really the moment that changed the game. Um, when they're trying to get funding from their kind of uh, the MTV people who are the, the the executives who are about to, are trying to found MTV, getting the kind of green light from this Warner Amex conglomerate is when they were like, and we don't need to pay for the video clips, and they're like, so it's all profit and they're like yeah dude it's all profit and then they were like okay 
have twenty million dollars. Pretty much. And that's kind of the 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 how it, it got launched. That twenty million dollars, it turned out, didn't last very long at all because again, and this is this funny like moment that it was in. And I think that this moment it's a little bit narratively unsatisfying, but I actually think it's really important to conceptualize just how influential MTV was gonna become, which is that cable was still super local, right? Which is funny because you think of cable as almost by definition national, but at this point, they're local cable providers. Yeah. <laughs> they're choosing which of the 10 stations or right. 12 stations they've managed to wire for are going to be put into people's houses. So like if you're in Denver or you're in LA or wherever you're in New York, you're going to get like different cable. You're going to get different right. cable stations. And then you have to convince it's not like there's national networks you have to if you want national coverage which in many ways like the mtv business model is based on the idea that they're going to have national coverage they're going to be able to reach teens from coast to coast you actually have to like go to denver or go to columbus or go to new york or long island and convince whichever company controls the cable to put in this station to pay for this station um, or to try to get their consumers to pay for the station, depending on kind of uh, the, 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 the various kind of cable packages that were available. And in fact, there, are, there were complaints in, especially in like rural areas of the country in the early 80s, that when MTV got added, it would replace a different channel. And they would get these amazing complaints being like, why do I don't want to pay for this terrible music channel? I want like my weather news. Yeah. And it, and it really and it actually really struggled at first. And that's when this whole thing that I said at the top of the show about I want my MTV came through because basically like they were having trouble convincing the cable providers. And so they were like, we need an ad campaign. If we get Mick Jagger yelling on you know all over the world about how like, you know, I want my MTV through, I guess, like commercials and like magazine advertisements or billboards or whatever then like people will actually like if you were in denver or wichita or something you would actually call your cable provider and you're like i'm interested in getting mtv i want my, my mtv i want my I mtv mean, I, exactly I, I think that like it's also impossible to overstate the extent to which this the success of this promotional campaign is based on kind of creating a permission structure where bored teenagers could call up cable news companies and yell at them like yeah. At 12, totally. I would have done that. That sounds fun. Yeah, especially if you're hearing about this like cool new music channel that like you don't know anything about, but you've heard about. You've never seen it, but you want to see it. You know? Yeah, I mean, it was totally, it's totally genius. It's also based off of like the way people engage in like political campaigns, which is just like sort of dark. That, like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's getting their buy-in. It's not just, I like this. It's like saying, I want my... No, it's a brilliant... It's a truly brilliant yeah. campaign. And I mean, it's all... I want my MTV. Call your cable company and say, I want my MTV. So, but so, so the thing, though, I think, and, and the, like, uh, thing is, again, like, I really do think it's important to dwell on those early difficulties, right? That's a slow, they're burning through money. They, they burn through their at like 20 million initial investment. They have to go back and get more. Um, they're at one point like getting good ratings, but they're only in 500,000 houses. It's a really a struggle to reach the kind of mainstream penetration that 
they need to in order to be successful. And I think that in a world in which you can upload a music video to YouTube or have a hit song on TikTok or you right, right? Like have, they're, they're just being like fairly easy to access, maybe not easy to get onto, but easy to access like national, international forms of media. Like it's impossible to overstate how scattered and disaggregated the media landscape of the United States was in 1981. And that as a result, how important that once MTV was able to really have coast to coast coverage, once it really did have 10, 20 million houses that it was uh, in, that this was a bigger media market and it had, you know, more potential for more impact than like anything that the music industry had ever seen before because there wasn't a radio station had 20 million listeners but mtv did or could and it was only going to keep growing everything was regional and mtv you start having like not i mean network television isn't regional but you're not going to get you're not going to get the cars on mainstream network television i mean this is why the ed you know the beatles on the sullivan show or like Elvis uh, on TV. That's why these were such big moments because they reached a national audience, but that was not reproducible. And so the idea of having a music focused thing that reached a national audience consistently, I really think was a game changer for the industry. Yeah, I and think those are all great points. And I think they can't be overstated really. Just you know how regional radio was, or even like if you think about, there's a great story I think it comes from Pat Benatar where basically like overnight, like with or like within a week of premiering a video on MTV, like anywhere they went, like people like recognize them. We're like, yeah, like maybe if you just think about the proliferation of images, like, yeah, like, you know, maybe you're catching a photo of what the band looks like in a Rolling Stone or, you know, like on the back of the album cover, but to like have that video on repeat on a 24 hour cable channel like even in that sense it's really just such a transformative period where everything really changed and it even like if you even think about like and even if you think about like you know just the way in which artists look you know all of a sudden now if they're like on the tv 24 7 you know that becomes like a major component now the fashion or the style or like even just like you know their body types and like how much that has like resonated even like in 20, 30, 40 years since then is still prevalent. If you just think about things like TikTok or even just like what we view on TV or what we expect from like a pop star and all these conversations that like really revolve around these issues, I think were maybe either were happening before MTV, but have only like been exacerbated. Yeah, it's hard MTV. to wrap your head around. Yeah, no, and and that and the and, and trying to think your way back into a, a media landscape that no longer exists is like, it's a profound challenge. But it, it's like it is it is crazy to think about. Like you know, you read about um, how influential the uh, the um, George Clinton <laughs> album covers were. These you know these trippy like super colorful cartoony psychedelic sexualized album covers and it's like because there's no other way to see this band like you can't google what they look like no internet <laughs> you know no tiktok or instagram stories the accessibility the it, the accessibility is so much lower and so the new accessibility that mtv provided to visuals i think was mind-blowing and, and you do see that uh kind of off of this 
initial wave of access, the bands that already had clips, which are this generation of, you know, the, the very first set of clips are in many cases like this weird mishmash of like a bunch of Rod Stewart videos and then like REO Speedwagon. There's a lot more REO Speedwagon on early MTV than I guess I expected. There's and then a couple of like these European bands, but really the the, the bands that are making new, the new bands that are making new videos are the European new romantic bands, right? Like famously like Culture Club, um, Duran Duran, um, Adam Ant. Uh, you know, and they're, and then all of a sudden they start selling in America. And that's kind of the first wave of bands that are breaking via MTV are these hyper-visual n- new wave bands that, frankly, I mean, we're not going to make it in the United States minus this. I really think that that, like, that particular movement's translation to America, there was no chance except by happenstance, MTV needed videos they looked great. <laughs> they had a wild visual style and were <laughs> basically playing like updated Philly soul. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's like no way that Culture Club makes it in the US without MTV. And I mean, there's even, you know, stories of that. Like one of the first cities to cable companies to accept MTV was in like Wichita and there's like a story in there about like how one of the execs like caught wind that like the Buggles with their song Video Killed the Radio Star which obviously was like an early uh which was one of the videos that was played on early MTV and I think like the record was like selling out in like Wichita and you know nobody would think that like the Buggles were going to be like a major hit in the U.S. And so it like just completely transformed, you know, what the record labels were willing to push and also like what maybe record stores were willing to like buy. It's funny, actually, though, just to just to like a, a brief aside is like the fact is that the Buggles made Video Kill the Radio Star before MTV, which gives you a sense that like it gives you a sense that this was in the air, right? Like there was already the song "Video Killed the Radio Star" before there was a music video channel, right? Yeah, it was. It was. It was definitely like in the air. But funny enough, I think MTV launched with with only like 150 videos at to start. So like, basically, you had a 24 hour cycle with just 150 videos to choose from. People, you can go ahead and do the math there. There wasn't a lot to choose from, and so sometimes they might have been making stars out of people, or at least like you know, giving certain artists a shot in the arm in record sales that <laughs> was really just sort of like a luck of the draw because of the fact that they just happened to have some sort of promotional video or music video that w- or music video in which they were like willing to give to MTV. Yeah, so they were really, really banking on people giving them more. <laughs> I wanted to take a step back because I think that to understand what happens next, 
which is the wide-scale buy-in of the record industry into MTV, it, it's useful to take a second and talk about the shape the music industry was in in 1981, 1982. Yeah, it was struggling. Struggling. Really not doing well. Like... And I think this is an important moment for a lot of reasons. I think it's an important moment because it, it's it's crucial context for um, the next major, major crash of the music industry, which is in, you know, the 2000s. Uh, we, we discussed that recently with um, m- many a time, but m- most recently on our episode with David Turner, our last episode. So check that out. So there's a bunch of different reasons that the music industry is, is struggling. There's both like kind of like there's a bunch of different reasons the music industry is struggling. And I think there's both kind of like large scale and small scale reasons. The most basic reason is that the baby boomers, there were a lot of them and they bought a ton of music when they were 15 to 24. But by the early eighties, the baby boomers, right? There's an actual decline. Generation X is smaller than the baby boomers. And so if you have an industry that's built on the expectation that you're going to have a baby boom number of teenagers out there, and then all of a sudden there stops being a baby boom number of teenagers, you're going to face headwinds no matter how you how, how you slice it. So on top of that, the kind of aging of the baby boomers, you've got the kind of general recession. And just to be clear here, those baby boomers, you're saying basically like have their bands they got like what they listen to on the radio and they're not as willing to like really sort of like branch out as much and like buy new records if they aren't from this sort of like set core of like rock bands and artists in which they kind of grew up listening to and continue to listen to right yeah yeah aging of the baby boomers who are no longer buying as much new music and in addition i think it's also the aging of the baby boom cohort also kind of had an aesthetic impact as well right that there was a moment of like generational gestalt, right? Where a handful of bands reach national American consciousness as kind of like everyone likes them or knows them. And those are the bands that become like the classic rock pantheon, basically. And so in the music industry, given the fact that new bands are always a risk and known bands are less of a risk, there's this kind of aging of the cohort of superstars that kind of goes through the first half of the 70s. Maybe you're still adding some to it, but by the second half of the 70s, they're really relying on this same, I mean, it's a problem they're still dealing with. They're still relying on these superstars, right? There's this like cohort of 60s era superstars that have mass appeal, mass brand recognition, whose records sell in enormous qualities and new records are it's much riskier and more expensive to try to get new uh, acts into that pantheon right so there's kind of this problem of talent they're facing and on on top of position ourselves historically are we talking like bruce springsteen here is is on the cusp right bruce springsteen is like maybe the last person to be added to that pantheon before the 80s we're talking about Led Zeppelin, Elton John is also in the right, but that's first half of the seventies. And then like if you think about and maybe maybe correct me if I'm wrong, if you think like seventy five to eighty four, I don't think of I can't think of a single superstar band that emerges in that period that's still in the classic rock pantheon. Yeah, it seemed to be like an era of like like overblown, like too many members, uh, you know, 
bands like I don't know Journey and like Boston, Kansas, Chicago. You know the city state bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the city state bands. No, and like I'm not saying no one sold records. This is like heyday of Aerosmith, but like none of those bands. I mean, Boston sells a shit ton of records, but like none of those bands have are the Rolling Stones or the Who or Zeppelin if they had kept touring or Bruce Springsteen, right? These these bands that have this consistent like like lifespan engagement with fans and audiences. And on top of that, you also have kind of changes in, in radio formats. So there's less pop radio. There's more kind of narrow cast radio. You have the rise of MOR, middle of the road <laughs> radio, which um, plays a, a smaller subset of songs. You've got less freedom as this industry gets more competitive as like so you sort of have like you say a lack of talent but you also have you know radio stations as well as labels kind of more like less willing to take risk on new artists i mean i think those two things go together though right like if you're the first band that's playing to teenagers in 1968 you can fuck up a lot and still print money but if that market is mature right and there's like five or six stations that are all fighting over the classic rock market we talked about this a little bit um in our uh our episode with eric weisberg right like especially talking about kind of the rise of classic rock radio and and classic rock in cleveland that you know if there's a couple of different competitor stations you need to make sure that your audience doesn't leave so you're increasingly unable to take risks on programming because it's it's a well-known like kind of radio rule of thumb that if someone hears a song they really don't like, they'll just change the channel and then they're gone until the next time they turn on the radio. And so then like MTV comes along and kind of breaks radio and labels out of that sort of stagnation. All these are kind of the big secular problems is what they're called, I think. Right? These are like in the landscape. They're not cyclical. These are like baked in. And then on top of that, you have the cyclical downturn of the 70s which is not just a massive consumer recession that also increases gas prices that let's say you're a band trying to break into that superstar status and you have to tour a lot it's kind of expensive to tour a lot (laughs) if gas raises in price dramatically on top of that you've got the very real (laughs) disco crash basically um and again we've talked about this in previous episodes but and this is kind of a classic bit of like record industry uh lore and legend but basically there was a disco boom um they realized that you could sell a ton of disco records they started just churning them out not investing in careers particularly but investing in singles and potentially dance clubs had something to do with that the popularity of soundtracks had something to do with that also it's nice yeah saturday night fever saturday night fever it's also uh again in the mtv didn't invent this like it's the biggest selling record of certainly it's year probably it's like era of the 70s yeah saturday night fever was like the top selling record slash soundtrack for like 10 years and actually it before that it was sound of music so obviously like this era of like mixing like images and video and music is like nothing new yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, it was like, a proven seller and sell in, in massive quantities, right? Like, what you have is, and, and this is kind of a truth about the music industry, is that it is possible to spend more on promotion and kind of juice sales, right? That 
the, the classic like pop music thing is you have to hear a song often like five or 10 or 15 times in order to like a song. So if you spend more on promotion, you can increase sales and you can keep doing that even if the profit margins get smaller and smaller and smaller as you're doing more and more promotion and or shady things in order to get your record gold or platinum that will then get written up in the music press that will then get stores to buy it that will then that will then that will then that will then and all of a sudden you're like wily coyote when you've just run right off that cliff and you look down and you realize that there's massive inflation that a huge number of records are being returned to you, that all those sales that you counted actually aren't sales, that you, in fact, barely have an inventory system at all. You have no idea how much profit or loss that you're having, and all of a sudden, you just start plummeting down. And that's basically what happened in the record industry in the late 70s. And and the industry, which, right, so the, the disco crash happens in, like, 78, 79. It's 81, it's 82, and the industry has maybe stopped the bleeding a little bit, but it's not doing great. It's hilarious that they were betting so much on the sales of Tusk. Like, it's the follow-up to Rumors um, by Fleetwood Mac. And Tusk is uh, a weird double album. It's got a a dog biting a guy on the front cover, and that's basically what it did to the record industry. It's It's cool. There's cool stuff on Tusk's, but they were like, Tusk better sell. <laughs> and then Lindsay. Sam with the Fleetwood Mac Tusk hot take there. But yeah, like it still illustrates a really interesting point that, you know, th- th- to look back now and realize that like the record industry was banking off of, you know, the follow up to rumors by Fleetwood Mac seems so absurd now. Uh, but back then, I guess that was a real thing. <laughs> yeah, because that's the other thing is that in this in the industry, especially in industry totally pre-data, one or two big artists could make enough money for the rest of the whole company to be fine. I mean, Capitol Records, which had the Beatles, basically didn't have to do anything for the entirety of the 60s because like anytime the Beatles released an album, it would sell all of the records. <laughs> and so they just didn't do anything for a decade and then had a really tough 70s. So all of this is is kind of the backdrop. So when MTV comes out and says, hey guys, so we can break a band. Look, we broke all these weird puffy haired, like cross-dressing British bands. We're going to need you to give us music videos and we're not going to pay you for them, but we'll show them a lot. How does that sound as a deal? The music industry, instead of saying, get fucked, said, okay, I mean, why not? We could, we'll- Yeah, well, to be clear, like obviously the, the record labels weren't as, a lot of them weren't as willing immediately to give over the, uh, to give over this content this video content but you know as soon as a few did and it proved to be like somewhat of a success like the record industry's hurting like what else are they going to do so that they were willing to like give this quote-unquote promotional material like over to mtv and say like well you know let's see if it works let's see if it helps this struggling industry right now exactly and and it's also important to note that this is this is a pre-fully consolidated record industry right so unlike today where there's three majors there's like five or I think six majors at this point and then two like big indies and any one of them then you get a collective decision making problem right any one of them could stick to their guns and be like you you better pay me but 
the least you know the one that has the least to lose is going to say sure and then all of a sudden their artists are getting played and then your artists are being like why aren't we being played on mtv and then you go and you talk to mtv and then before you know it the entire industry is just providing content to this uh, new cable channel that's just churning through videos and then it's working and then i think this is this is like the magic moment right this is where MTV becomes, remakes the music industry because all of a sudden there is, in cooperation with these record labels, there is a single national force that is able to, if it puts a song on really heavy rotation, is able to really, really expose a band. It's able to make stars clearly, right? Like a good video can absolutely make you a star. And this is where MTV, I think, changes the culture. Because if you think about, like, the problems that the record industry is facing, there's kind of two solutions to it. One (laughs) that they also start developing in this early 80s is CDs. And they're like, oh, shit, we can sell the Rolling Stones all over again. And that's a story where that goes through the 90s and the record industry... Yeah, as it turns out, getting all those boomers who are like are not willing to buy music as quickly and getting them to basically rebuy their entire catalog in a new format from record to CD turns out to be a massive moneymaker. And then the other one is there's kind of this moment, I think, in this early MTV era when in some ways the conditions that held in the late 60s, the kind of cultural consciousness that held during the late 60s is available again, right? That so many kids are tuned into their MTV, are watching so much of this, that there's this kind of micro-generation of artists that comes out in the late 80s, is attuned to visuals, figures out how to play the MTV game and really integrate it into their art, and then becomes the next round of superstars that sell the way the old bands did, but to a new generation. So you have U2. Yeah, there's some like interesting points in some of the research I've done where you have artists or people saying that, or where you have artists or people in the industry saying that oftentimes it was getting to a point where maybe like the song didn't even matter and it was just really about a good video or, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have like Simon LeBon, basically of Duran Duran. You have Simon LeBon of Duran. You have Simon LeBon of Duran Duran saying that you know before MTV, there was like, you know, they couldn't sell cookies in the U.S. I think is like what the quote is. But then all of a sudden became like a major band, and oftentimes on the back of their music videos, or you have someone like Madonna who is like purposely playing up this sort of explicitness of and what's taboo and like kind of pushing boundaries in her video obviously to get to 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 play that game as you said and you know that obviously results in like record sales and ticket sales and all of that and duran duran did the same thing with with the with the video you know girls on film yeah but regardless they're able to get that kind of cultural consciousness that allows them to have the kinds of long-term careers that the record industry needs for the, the profits that they were used to, right? So you get these artists out of this very, it's funny, right? If you think about it, I think there's this very specific moment. Most of it's like 83 to 84. And then there's a little bit later on where you get these artists that have forever followings, 
So you get Madonna, Prince, you get U2, you get the police, you get, who else? Uh, a little bit later, Guns N' Roses. And some of these artists may have never gotten radio play uh, in the format that it was, like pre-MTV. But they're not getting radio play, but also your bands that I think, all those bands is interesting, they come out of this moment, right? Like, there is, they don't really, they're not the band, they're not Duran Duran, who's like trying to break in America maybe, but can't get in through formats. It's like Madonna's career coincides almost completely with MTV. Same same thing with U2, right? Like U2 is hyper aware of the importance, as a rock band, of the importance of these big visuals that fit their aesthetic as a rock band. And again, like have these huge video hits and then become a forever touring band that U2 still still uh, sells at stadiums globally based on, I think, again, like access to a mass market of almost undivided attention that early MTV provides. And then in many ways, I think it allows the music industry to pull out of this slump by creating this new... Um, new set of superstars. I mean, and then maybe most famously, the one we haven't really talked about at all is Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's Thriller, right? Which is, as we know, maybe the most famous example of a record that is absolutely driven by its videos. It's, I think it's the biggest seller of the 80s. And what's funny though, is if you think about like Michael Jackson's career now, if you think about like the songs you actually hear, you hear a lot more off the wall tracks, actually. I think it's a more influential record in many ways. Actually, if you try to listen to Thriller front to back, it is not, like the big tracks are amazing. And then there's some ballads that are not nearly as good on that record. Like off the wall is a better record, but Everyone knows Thriller because there's two, like one amazing, you know, three amazing videos, right? You've got Billie Jean, amazing video. You've got Beat It, amazing video. And then you've got the Thriller video, which is this absolutely legendary short film that MTV actually paid for, <laughs> technically, because they, they paid for it as part of the making of Thriller documentary that also <laughs> included the budget of the Thriller music video, but they weren't willing to pay for any other music videos and didn't want to create a precedent that maybe they should start doing that. But no one was willing to pay for Thriller. They were like, we're going to play the song forever and make our money from it, and they did. And in many ways, that's right. That's a star, a, a star, I think, more, more than Prince, more than uh, Madonna, who's just um, inextricably linked from that format. It's a weird time, but, though, because like this sort of you know star-making years and like the sort of like the how it changes maybe like what's being sold in the record store and how it's like changes radio and and everything it really is like this like kind of very brief fleeting moment because pretty immediately mtv starts cutting exclusivity deals with the major labels yeah and it's like i read this and i was like oh this is Spotify. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I was like, of course. Of course. Of right? course it was did. like, it was like, like, we aren't giving you these videos for free. Fuck you. Okay, shit. Maybe we do. Maybe we will because it's a necessity now. And this like channel is getting popular. And then it's like, okay, very quickly. It's like, okay, but now we want exclusive deals or we're not going to give you these videos because now you need them too. 
So that way we can guarantee the bands that we want get played on this on your well, channel. Yeah. Let, let's just let's just like that like just take that a little bit slower. So basically, right, what you get very quickly is a series of competitors to MTV that start popping up and being like, maybe we should also have a video channel. Um, MTV launches VH1 to try to crush some of them, again, allegedly. Uh, some of them continue, like BET or uh, Country Music Television, which I think pops up around this time. There's kind of some uh, network TV has kind of like hour-long or two-hour-long video slots that kind of are circulating around. Well, that's and, a, but we should we should make like the reason why the reason why like CMT and BET pop up is because of the fact that MTV, which we haven't mentioned up until now, which we probably should, was strictly based for a very long time on rock and roll, and that's another thing that Michael Jackson did was that he kind of like helped break break that border, also with like some bad press from the likes of like Rick James, who like were had had trouble getting on MTV. So I just wanted to mention it that like this like sort of narrow casting and this like very specific audience in which they're appealing to allowed for competitors to pop up like BET and CMT and like yeah it's a it's a super interesting conversation that we could spend like an entire episode on but yeah when MTV launched like the first thing that was said in its very first like minute was ladies and gentlemen rock and roll and so and that was very much for a while that was very much for a while for the very first couple of years was like their focus as as you just no it's funny because it's such like a like so many of the bands that are blowing up early on, like I would not consider like rock and roll. Like Duran Duran. Yeah. But like the, that was <laughs> like the idea that like rock music, the truth, like the culture, that was still like it's like a, an idea that's so not particularly like useful to us now. And it's funny and like I have a I sometimes like in doing research for the show struggled with how much they seemed to believe in that. But I really think they like in addition to like having a lot of blind blind spots, they also I think did believe in it. But but yeah. So to go back, also remember it's like corporate it's corporate dudes basically. <laughs> yeah, white white corporate dudes. Yeah, white corporate dudes, right? Yeah. But anyway, so like there's so it gets to this point where basically the labels need MTV, and then it becomes a symbiotic relationship where now like MTV needs to make sure they need the labels, and there's like competitors popping up. Right. So their competitors popping up, and MTV is though the biggest fish in the sea by and by by like a huge huge margin and again still there's fairly limited cable options it's not like you can easily have every you know any cable slot you have is displacing another channel and so basically it's not youtube it's not the internet there's nothing right so basically mtv starts cutting exclusivity deals with the major labels and the deal is basically this. The major labels start looking at how much money they're ending up paying for music videos. And they're like, we need you to pay us or else we're going to pull our content. And MTV is like, well, we need to get to crush these competitors, basically. Specifically, one that's being floated by um, Ted Turner of uh, all kinds of <laughs> 80s corporate shenanigans and so <laughs> which in a moment of irony like ted turner also is like like threw money behind mtv to to help it first launch when it was running out of money and it, and so it basically they would sell cnn with mtv <laughs> oh yeah 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 it's, and that involved a- like that and, and like that that like involved uh, like like a smoking a peace pipe of weed in like a uh, 
Allegedly. Boston, yeah, a Boston Marriott hotel with like Ted Turner and one of these guys. It, it's it's weird, wild corporate shit. But yeah, anyways, yeah, there's other there's competitors is is the, is the main is the main point. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you get this deal, these deals. So the the labels start getting paid by MTV for showing the videos. MTV gets thirty day exclusivity on the major artist videos. These are the big hit videos, and then MTV manages to crush its competitors so yeah and on top of that the major labels were guaranteed that something like 35 percent of the videos that were played on mtv were these bands so now you have what do you see you have major labels having like a huge influence over the content that's being shown to the viewers of mtv and mtv still gets to retain some like creative control rights in the sense that they get the other whatever like 65 70% and get to decide what they play but then they start making deals with other labels as well and so like that 65 70% that they that they get to choose what they want starts getting filled up by these other labels too so now what are you getting you're getting getting content being televised to these viewers that's pretty much under the control of these major labels Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, think <laughs> if you've listened to our crazier. Spotify show, this might sound a little bit familiar. <laughs> My, I, I even think it might be even crazier in that, like, it's something. I think that some of these deals were like a certain percentage are MTV promises to air like artists on the label, and then a certain percentage the label just gets to choose and give to MTV. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like very direct and, intervention. And, and these deals, these deals were happening like basically started in the beginning, I think, of like 1984. And then like carried and then like really like you know with all the labels i think the first one was in 1984 by 1985 mtv basically has deals with all these labels and so there's like this very short period of time where there was like mtv was getting free content the labels required like needed the injection that mtv was giving them in sales and then by like just like two or three years into mtv's existence already you have like a like the major labels have a huge hand in the content that is being shown on mtv I mean, it's major labels and cockroaches, right? Like the last survivors of the apocalypse are going to be major labels and cockroaches. <laughs> Their ability to react yeah. to these format changes is, is really, I mean, at least in the 20th and 21st century music industry, very impressive. It, it, it's also... But of, course these, but of course also these labels uh, talking about how impressive they are. They weren't satisfied. But wait a minute. Like we want to get reimbursed for the cost of these videos. So who do they turn to to fuck over? What do you know? the artists and the bands that they're signing to their labels. Yeah. So in like a classic piece of classic, absolute classic classic standard operation, music industry, (laughs) like standard operate, standard operate from day one, standard operating procedure. The system that gets established is this bands pay for video costs out of their advances, which are fully or mostly recoupable. Um, in like the the very weird like splits of the music industry so basically you know you could still be in debt to the record label well after the record label started making back money because you're using a small percentage of total sales whatever percentage of the total sales your contract specifies is then you have to fill out of that percentage the promotional costs of the entire record so what sam is trying to say is if you're guns and roses and you want to make a video for Welcome to the Jungle because you kind of fucking have to because if you're going to be any kind of big band, you need a fucking music video during this time. And that video costs $150,000. The label's like, yeah, we'll go ahead and front that money for you, but like, we're going to take it out of your album sales. 
So Guns N' Roses comes out of the video. That $150,000 doesn't go to them. It goes to the label. But here's the most fucked up thing. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the most fucked up thing is that it's not out of the total sales of the, the record because that video is pushing the total sales of the record. It comes out of the uh, 10% uh, 10% royalties that the band, because they were no one, signed and you know these, these i'm making up the number for guns and roses but like these really low percentages that bands signing these multi-album deals um and it gets even worse it actually gets even worse so that so the money's being taken out of the royalties and the band doesn't have any rights over that music video so not only does the label get reimbursed and then take that reimbursement out of the royalties that's owed to the band then once it's repaid that video is completely owned by the by the major label the band has nothing no say what happens to that video i mean that's <laughs> it's a, a triple the, fuck you over i mean like, in in fairness to the record label that's also how albums work right like once you repay the recording cost of the album you don't get your masters they still own your masters i mean that was just again that's standard records industry operating yeah, they're like, procedure. yeah whatever but you know i just want to illustrate that point so i mean the other thing that's interesting i think the other thing that's interesting is like the ways in which this was all uh, in a set of moves that again reminds you of the kind of uh, like behind the scenes corporate maneuvering that still characterizes the music industry today. It's also interesting, I think, the ways in which a clear new profit center of the music industry emerged and no one knew was cut in. Right. So video directors get paid a lot of money up front early on. They do not get paid a lot of money, but video directors also don't, even if they are creating a visual that becomes a crucial part of the song, right, becomes a part of the song's value, becomes a part of how people imagine the song that sells the record. Even though the music videos are increasingly what is breaking and selling records in the United States no one who works on music videos is getting points on the record. It's still like a promotional clip that's basically like the, my understanding is the legal mechanism is like a promotional clip. And so instead of thinking about this as like a, as a, a new co-creation between various people that kind of exists on its own, it's just a promotional clip. You're paid off. You get paid $80,000. And if people are still 20 years later watching this thing that's still driving to a certain extent in the age of youtube sure driving record sales which which and of course like at least like once a year i like get drunk and watch right. remember the, rain no no one you know neither i mean the songwriters are getting paid for that which is axel rose and his piano um but the band isn't getting paid for that and no one involved in the creation or production of that video presuming that that wasn't just storyboarded and directed by axel rose i think it actually might have been but yeah i sorry that's a bad example but i think but, but either way wait, like it, you know yeah any video it, being made at that time basically yeah and so it's just fascinating to think about the ways in which like that was just kind of like those possibilities were totally effectively foreclosed that even as this new system is being established like new rights holders are not being written in because all the agreements are like on you know under the table signed up sealed done before there even gets to be even, before that conversation even even really starts 
as like video budgets get more and more expensive and as you get this like handful of superstars that are really start to like carry the industry on their back going forward again with like Michael Jackson's Thriller as maybe like the most prominent example um you also get kind of this a like squeeze and b like increased major label domination of of the whole of the music industry so you get a squeeze in that these big artists get so much mtv play so often that not even are they not breaking little artists anymore you also start to get fewer mid-level artists and i think that there's probably a, a debate about this and like you could probably go back and, and do the analytics um, i have not done that that would be a fascinating study um but there's a sense at least in, in the research i did that you start there, there start being fewer mid-career like middle class bands and that's no yeah what happens is like basically what, what the industry like what causes the problem with the industry in the first place is that you just like you basically get this sort of stagnation where you just have like a few bands and like they're the money makers and the labels just grab a hold of them and now they have their influence in mtv so where mtv maybe like you know was able to like bring bands like duran duran or whoever into you know li the limelight in the u.s like suddenly you kind of get this is what I what I'm calling like a corporatization and like they're just like listen these are the money makers and now we have a hand in MTV and now like these are the these are the bands that we're going to continue to push and push and push and then once again those little bands like say like you know that I keep mentioning them but like the Duran Durans get pushed out again and I think that's what also what's interesting if you understand what happens in the music industry over the next 15 years or 10 years rather right is you get the music industry stops investing in these mid-level bands that maybe make some money, maybe they're 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 traditionally not as profitable as the big bands, right? They can make a small amount of money over a long period of time, but that does also keep your ear to the ground. And what I think you start getting in the music industry over the you know the mid to late '80s is basically they outsource that. So you've got a major music industry that puts a lot of money into hair metal. <laughs> um, and a couple of kind of disposable pop groups at the end of the 80s. And then you get this increasing thriving underground scene that's quite separate until the music industry looking for precisely the kinds of mid-level bands and new talent that they had spent a, basically a decade excluding. They kind of go this very culturally destructive, like hogwild feeding frenzy and just sign every single band including almost tad <laughs> uh the story of tad i'm gonna save it um and so i think what actually kind of comes out of this is that you really see once again that the same problem that got the labels into this trouble into the first place where you see stagnation and and basically you have these money-making artists and now that major labels have like a huge hand in dictating like what is the content on MTV. And then what you see and like is MTV's ratings dip. And now while we both admit like despite like all our pretty extensive research, we didn't really get like a full answer between the two of us of like why MTV's ratings started to dip. Partially it's just not as new. Yeah, maybe not as new, but I think maybe there was part of that sort of stagnation where like once again, you're just getting a bunch of sort of corporate bands like pushed into your face and like maybe there's like now like a younger generation coming up who just isn't interested in that kind of music i mean that's just you know that i'm i'm, I'm speculating but you do i would also yeah. guess i would also guess if we're just speculating a little bit more that 
MTV, even while they're allowing in Michael Jackson and they're allowing in Prince, that MTV was going to be, given that kind of narrow cast vision that they really struggled to get out of, they're going to be slower to pick up some pretty important trends that are already starting to drive, that are already starting to drive listenership in the late 80s. So I think they're not airing hip-hop they end up airing hip hop in the '90s, and they air a couple. They walk this way video, but like, my guess is that they're not doing as much hip hop as people in 1989 are listening to hip hop. I'm also. I think, guess- I think that's a great point, but I think also like the narrow casting just becomes even more difficult because of the fact that once again these labels start having a hand in like what MTV is dictating. No, a- absolutely. Sorry, what what MTV is showing, and so like that just makes it even more narrow. And I mean, like, let's be frank, like. I don't really trust like corporate guys to know what the fuck is going on and to like keep up with like trends. I mean, like, but um, anyways, but uh, yeah. So like you kind of so basically what happens is that you see uh, MTV's ratings dip for like whatever reason, and that's when like the sort of format started changing with like the real world and all that, and like, and that is obviously like highly influential, and it kind of I think marks the sort of second period of MTV really changing the cultural landscape in another way. We are going to not go into that because that would take another hour <laughs> yeah and, and mtv stops playing music videos as the primary part of their identity and and i think really effectively um keeps some of the really innovative production feel that kind of marked them as a brand and transitions it into this very different content and it's been like really effective at maintaining their ratings like as a television show but that does also i think that that late 80s dip where whether it's because people are tired of it whether it's because they're slow because of consolidation and because of these deals with the record labels they don't have their fingers on the pulse in the same way so they're not playing rap or country music or heavy metal and even couldn't if they wanted to really yeah. i mean or at least don't until those bands you know metallica ends up getting played on mtv after the black album but like ride the lightning sells a lot of records and if you want people who are most interested in like spending a lot of time listening to music or watching music videos like i think that you you do get like just less interest because it's it's less accurate less in- innovative music program yeah yeah so maybe to just like wrap up the show here like maybe let's like uh discuss a little bit of like mtv's influence and like lasting impacts because and maybe let's start with something that does sort of take an element actually from the real world and the sort of reality television like revolution that like MTV uh, kind of went into their second phase and like really changed the cultural landscape and television and everything. And like maybe, you know, talk about TikTok a little bit because I, when reading about the history of MTV, I mean, maybe it was already evident to me beforehand, but it really became extremely clear that, wow, like TikTok is like a great, I don't know, grandchild of MTV in like a lot of ways. And even if you think about, you know, like some of the stories that have come out over the last couple of years where like, you know, small bands, like let's say uh, Beach Bunny, a sort of like indie pop punk band out of Chicago, yeah, totally. like really getting notoriety, basically being picked up by TikTokers because like, you know, small clips of like a certain song, I, I forget the song, but like, you know, getting used a lot and really kind of like helping them, I don't want to say like launch their career because I'm not quite sure if they really have like a huge career right now, but like, you know, people, a lot more people come to their concerts now and they're like touring the US and maybe they got a record deal or whatever, you know, and it really feels like this sort of, you know, and obviously the use of music and the use of video it really feels like a, you know uh a connected to that sort of mtv style of like the music videos but it also does have this sort of element of 
reality television which you know is also like rooted back to mtv as, as a music channel yeah no totally i mean i think what was really interesting is like you can go both forward and back with mtv and and, and one of the things i've been trying to figure out is like the ways in which music is held as its own separate thing or not and when those blend and when those don't and there is this funny like return to mean thing right like mtv happened you know there are all these stories now it's like the music industry is all visual like it's taking away from the album because it's individual songs it's all this discourse about that's in many ways reaction to like it's no longer about a record it's about this multimedia thing and, and it's fascinating thinking about tiktok and then reading the same kind of discourse in 1982, 1983 about MTV. And I I don't quite have the answer for why, like in between those points, there's a return to mean where it's like music is music and visuals are visuals and they're different things when clearly in this like shifting multimedia landscape, those are circles and sometimes they overlap more or less based on how the industries are structured and maybe that's part of it right like there's i think a really natural urge to want to think about these various art forms as like naturally occurring things right like there's a thing yeah, called there's music. Like an authenticity like there's like about a, it yeah. yeah there's a thing called music there's a thing called visuals those are like different things as opposed to like what we think of as music is the product of a shifting set of industries and corporate actors and technologies and mediascapes, all of which are constantly changing, none of which are always the same, but there are all these like through lines and dynamics and these like cycles that like seem to repeat over time. And like, there is a funny thing I think about like, uh, I think there's an urge, like an inclination, like you're saying, like an authenticity thing to want to say like, well, music is one thing instead of music is many things. And sometimes it includes visuals really firmly, almost in the center, like with Michael Jackson. And sometimes it doesn't include videos as much like with, I don't know, Nirvana's music videos are like important, but are not central to the appeal of Nirvana in the same way, I would argue. And that that kind of lack of fixity and, and it's, the way in which like the reality of our experiences are dependent on these industries is is, like a little bit upsetting maybe, but I think it's true as far as I could tell. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. And and, you know, you could even like take the authenticity, you could even take the authenticity question and, you know, make a through line between, uh, you know, Millie Vanilli and I don't know who was it Beyonce who was like accused of not singing, while she was performing or like lip singing or maybe it was somebody else. But you know, like Millie Vanilli, in case you're not fam- familiar, was like a duo, sort of like R&B, like pop duo that it was, you know, won, won awards and Grammys and everything. And then it was revealed that they didn't write any of the music and they were just like lip singing the whole time. They didn't even you sing know. on it. Yeah, they didn't even sing on it. Yeah, they were just basically like actors. And that kind of came out of like- Those MTV. tracks kind of, those tracks kind of- No, they do, though. for sure. And like, I mean, you know, and they kind of came out of the era of like MTV and became a huge debate about, you know, like, everything that Sam was basically just was was just discussing but then you still see basically the same question pop up again about when it comes to you know when a pop artist who is going through uh, an enormous amount of uh, dancing and costume changes and like running all over a, a, a stage that is like half a football field long 
oh, they're not. We're singing. talking about Mick Jagger, right? Yeah, sure, right, exactly. Like they're not actually singing, so therefore there's like some sort of something that's like not authentic about it, or like not music. It's like entertainment, but it's like not music, and it's just these sort of same questions that just sort of keep coming up, and it's really fascinating. Um, that like, yeah, like I don't know why that is or what the answer is, but it it does very much, I think, become emphasized because of the fact that MTV existed. <laughs> yeah. And it, it really, it really shaped, um, and really shaped like people's thinking about like what a visual is and how it relates to music. And you could imagine an alternate history where America has top of the pops in a, in a realer sense. And then it's like these weird, like semi live performance clips, right? Like my sense is that like live video performances are like, yeah, we have, you could play on Letterman or whatever, but it's like much more important in the UK because of a slightly different media system because a different song, it's a different song, a, because a different show became a hit at a slightly different moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so let me just shift real quick and maybe to finish up the show and I just want to get like a thought or two from you. So another thing that really kind of, you know, another thing that I've, I was thinking a lot about and like doing the research and thinking through the show was Spotify and just how like sort of, and we don't need to get into it because obviously, you know, we've had two shows, you know, go listen to our one with our, 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 all our shows with David Turner, but definitely not our last one. And like, you know, we've done things on Spotify before, but, but the, the way in which Spotify has changed and transformed since it launched in the States in 2011 and how much the influence of the major labels have on that platform really reminds me of the ways in which like MTV in a very short period of time basically became like a puppet and like another way for like major labels to like assert their influence on the, the listener in this case, or like an MTV, it was obviously the viewer, viewer slash listener. And I'm just kind of, you know, just kind of thinking through this, um, you know, one thought I had was that, you know, despite the fact that like, I'm pretty sure everything I've read about Daniel Ek, that he like really doesn't give two fucks about music or he's just like a casual music fan and everything that I read about the guys who started MTV, they just seemed like, you know, typical like boomer, like rock and roll guys. Like there is something very cool about the formats themselves and like fucking so awesome and like such potential for like really cool shit that like hasn't really come to fruition because of the influence I think of these major labels and you know you could say like capitalism and money and all that stuff as well you know but I mean like the idea you know setting aside the environmental issues around it but like the idea of being able to like have all the music you want at your fingertips on demand is like a really fucking cool idea you know like imagine if you could have that and it like somehow didn't harm the environment but also you know paid people fairly like that's a cool fucking idea like just in its basis that's a good idea that you feel like i want to exist but then it becomes complicated if it's possible yeah. unless it's fundamentally yeah. unless it's fundamentally right, exactly possible. sure and the desire for the consumption of all music is fundamentally problematic yeah. but that's a different yeah that's a different conversation oh, no but that's good <laughs> but like let's just say you know and generally like i'm like i'm like into that you know i mean i use spotify whatever but like it is interesting to like it is interesting to see how time and time again these like music these big music labels have just like you know massive corporations have basically just like come in and like wrangled it in so that they can get more money like for their own control and like obviously the people that get fucked over time and time again is the artist and the listener and it's really fascinating to me 
platforms. And if I could just add, and it's really interesting if you think about it in relation to Spotify, how they're trying to change their format. They're going into like podcasting now and trying all these different things the same way MTV switched up and, you know, maybe for a different reason, maybe for uh, the same reason, debatable, but like went into like reality television and programming and scripted television and everything like that. You know, now you see like Spotify trying to actually kind of like change course. Yeah, you know, no, absolutely. And I do, I do think that like at a very basic level, like the fact that you've got these, you, you both of these companies became handcuffed to industries that were going to extract resources from them f- probably did more or less force both companies that is MTV and Spotify to like try to move away from their reliance on these other companies. But that's a really, that's really fascinating, Saxon. And, and I think it kind of reminds me of something that I've also been been thinking about, especially, but that, that early, that early, when we were talking about how innovative early MTV was in, in many ways, that very, very, very brief moment, let's say 82 to late 83, maybe early 84, that, you know, I, I tend not to, it's a, it's a question I've been thinking about lately, which is that like, are there moments of more or less like cultural creativity is not quite the right word, right? But like certainly from an industry standpoint, they were having problems generating a certain kind of new artist that would get people to follow them and love them forever. And they were really struggling to do that. And then there's this moment when as like a culture industry, this fairly brief moment when as a culture industry, the music industry is more effective, right? That there's a number of super major artists that come out of this very narrow period. And then there aren't any more for a really long time, like maybe forever, uh, at least in like the, the most main of mainstreams, maybe like a couple of heavy metal bands exception, at least in the US. I don't want to speak for like the global music market because it's a far more complicated thing. But it's it's interesting and like what kind of mixture of like cultural and social and business dynamics allow for that to happen and the ways in which in this very funny way, the music industry, like you're saying, I think it's, it's accurate, right? In some ways, the music industry closed off that period. The period they kill pretty consistently the goose that lays the golden egg. And there is a funny thing because actually I sort of believe that like, I like music and if I had to root for like one industry over another industry, it's like if the music industry had a 10th of the resources or money thrown at it that like Marvel movies have, like I think that would be better for like an art form I love. So like at some level, I feel like as a listener, as someone engaged in this space, like I don't want to root by no means am I rooting for the major labels, but like moments when the music industry and artists and the media scape are able to produce really big artists with long-term satisfying careers seems to be a healthier one. Now, again, those 84, some of those are great. Some of those are bands I don't particularly like, but it does seem like that's a healthier model if you're able to continue producing those instead of every 15 or 20 years by accident producing five and then squeezing the life out of them as much as you desperately can for the next 20 25 years that model seems to not work at all and so i am interested kind of as to what you're saying is like what were those conditions that allowed these kind of things to happen like maybe a slightly saner slightly healthier slightly more innovative slightly more open music industry and like 
why did it end? And and some of it has to do, I think, with what you're saying about like these new media and these new format changes that it, it there was this moment of relative openness where you could get an innovative artist like Madonna who's willing to do all sorts of stuff, like become a superstar on the back of a medium that she profoundly understood. Yeah, and then like it kind of just, yeah, and then like, I don't know if it's because- Slips away. It slips away, but I think it might slip away because like, you know, maybe the corporations get greedy or maybe like you're saying, maybe they don't have enough like money to like really take those risks. I don't know. It's a question that we will leave it up to you, the listener to contemplate and we will continue to think think about ourselves. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, music by bird language please rate and review us it really helps us get the good word out about money for nothing thanks for listening we'll see you in a couple weeks bye